A reading from the book of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the son of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of 1 Peter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Lord as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel according to uh, Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, 
But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I know many of you are wondering when my sabbatical starts. I know that because people keep asking, when does your sabbatical start? And I hope it's just because they're interested in a good-natured way, not just trying to get me out of here. Um, but be- this week especially, then, I've gotten quite a few jokes. Well, your sabbatical starts on Sunday. Do you really need to preach? I mean, you could just get up there and be like, there you go, pray about it for a while and sit down. So that's what I'm going to do. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, people are thinking, that'll get you out of the sermon work, but, but I mean, I like the sermon work and still, but, but people are missing the bigger point here. I have to let you know, I get to start the summer series today, and then I get to leave for the whole summer. So that means I like get to, like, I mean, I get to have some big hopes for what happens here. I can either do so well today that it just makes it hard for everyone preaching after me to follow along, and then I'm not here to be yelled at for it, or I can do so poorly today that it makes it really hard for everyone preaching after me coming along, and I won't be here to know either way about it. So either way, it's a win for me. So let's just stick together on this and see how it turns out this morning, if you join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for this church that we can be together and worship. I'm so thankful for the great gift of your word, even these uh, complicated um, words in Hosea this morning. I ask that you um, speak to our hearts and minds and draw us to your great love. Amen. So my daughter, Ellie, uh, has just entered her terrible threes, or my wife calls her a three-nager now. Um, I've been saying, and it happened just as sabbatical is about to start, really. But so if you're, if you're not familiar, we've never had terrible twos as a thing. I don't know, maybe you did, but for us, it was always the threes. So for Ellie, um, she's actually even not quite three. So either she's just that much more terrible, or she's ahead of the curve, or whatever she's trying to do to us in this. Our boys had their moments around three, but nothing quite like Ellie. And that's because, as I've been told, um, Ellie takes an awful lot after me on these things. I was an incredibly stubborn child, and they have all, my parents tell me all the stories that prove that, and Ellie just wants to be like her dad. Um, but right now, that means for us that raising Ellie feels a bit like raising two different children, because sometimes she's really sweet and affectionate, she wants me to play, she asks to come help, you know, she's excited to see me. And then sometimes, well, a few days ago, um, just one example, she decided her feet didn't work. So she sat at the bottom of the stairs for 45 minutes and demanded to be carried up the stairs. So I told her, Ellie, just say please, and I'll carry you up the stairs. And she looked at me and said, but Daddy, I can't say please. And I said, you just said please. Just remove everything else. I, Daddy, I can't say that word. She also couldn't say help or any of those types of words in those moments. But I can't just tell you about my amazing daughter all day here. There's a point. So like I said, we're starting our summer series. This summer we're going to be looking through the minor prophets. We're actually going to cover all of them before the fall, one sermon per prophet. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, when you be here, enjoy, learn a lot. If you miss them, catch up online or something so you can figure out how all this works. But as we come to the prophets, today Hosea, um, we are regularly going to encounter what can feel like 
two dueling descriptions of God. Sometimes we're going to see the love of God for his people and then his judgment for his people. And we start to wonder about this God. And we start to think, is he divided or kind of confused in these things? Frankly, it can be easy to see God and think, he's a lot like that little three-year-old that I'm struggling with at home right now. He's going between love and stubborn anger with no rhyme or reason. Or maybe not so cute, we just think he's bitter. And he just lashes out at those who aren't get, you know, when he's not getting his way or so many other things. But those aren't accurate understandings of who God is or why he's doing what he's doing. God is certainly loving and good, and because of that, he must justly respond to the sins of his people. But those things are hard to hold together. And so especially in the prophets, we're going to see so many times that God gives us images and illustrations of just who he is and how he's relating to his people to help us understand. And Hosea, really a key illustration here of God's relationship to his people is that he is a faithful husband to them. And we're going to be exploring that more as we go on. But first, just a little helpful history for us. So Hosea was a prophet in Israel. He began probably around 750 B.C., which is about 225 years after the one nation of Israel had actually divided into two. So there was Judah in the south, and the northern kingdom was Israel. And that is where Hosea is prophesying. And at the beginning of his ministry, Israel was in a fairly good place. They were strong and prosperous. Their king, Jeroboam II, he'd ruled for a long time. He'd had victories, big building projects. But from here, kind of everything starts this long decline and collapse and problems. The rulers are surprisingly regularly assassinated. Um, the, everything else starts collapsing. And you have this big power of Assyria pressing in and coming for them. But all of that, really, those are just symptoms or signs of the greater problem that Israel has. And that's the problem that Hosea spends his career speaking against. See, Israel, the people of Israel had turned away from their devotion to Yahweh. And instead, they devoted themselves to pretty much anything else. So Israel as a whole had been chosen by God to be his special people, not because of their own abilities or values, but because of God and because of his choice and his promises to Abraham. Abraham was their most important ancestor. So God redeemed all Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he entered into a covenant relationship with them. He was expanding on that relationship he already had with Abraham and their fathers. And in that relationship, God promised that he would be faithful to Israel. He would bless and protect them because he was going to bless the world through them. And Israel promised also to live in that covenant relationship, to live it out. They were to worship and serve only Yahweh, their Lord. They were to live their lives holy and set apart for him. But from the very beginning, the northern kingdom had actually chosen idolatry. Actually, their first king, as one of his first big acts, actually set up idols in two places in the country and told all his people, go worship there, don't go down to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. And so many of the people did. They worshipped those worthless idols, and then they worshipped the gods of their neighbors. In so many ways, they worshipped their own success and wealth. They tossed aside holiness in the pursuit of justice. And to top off all of that, so many of these people would still claim that they were following the Lord. They could turn from one moment from worshipping worthless idols and fake gods, and they'd turn right to their covenant God and see no discrepancy there. So Hosea was prophesying to his people, trying to wake them up, um, probably prophesying all the way until Israel fell to Assyria in 721. Today's passage in front of you, um, this really highlights some of the big core messages that Hosea has for the people and has for us. Um, you just have chapter 1 in front of you. It's actually chapters 1, 2, and 3 are a very unified section in the whole book, probably the most unified section. Um, so I'll be moving around in those a little bit this morning. I just didn't want to give you quite that much text in front of you. So if you're at all familiar with Hosea here, it's probably these chapters, 1, 2, and 3, that you're most 
familiar with, that you've heard about in some way. They're how I'm most familiar with him here. Um, that's because these chapters kind of have the most surprising element of the prophet's life. When God calls Hosea to be his prophet, it's surprising that the very first thing he tells Hosea to do is to go and get married. Go enter into a very complicated marriage and relationship here. Now, right away, I just want to pause us for a second. Um, this is a complicated story. It's a unique relationship. And we're very naturally drawn to kind of trying to fill out the story between what happens with Hosea and his wife, Gomer. We start trying to read between the lines and understand all these things. Some of you might know of a Christian romance novel that tries to explain the story out in some sense. Uh, but there's a couple of things I want us to hold on to. First, we actually aren't told all that much about this relationship. So we should always be pretty careful how many things we try to fill in on our own. It's not usually very helpful. But second, much more, we aren't told that much because we don't need that many details because the point isn't simply Hosea's marriage with Gomer. Um, there's a point to his marriage for his whole audience, for even us. And that is it functions, it functioned as a lived symbol of Israel's relationship with her covenant God. This is meant as a prophetic act to point Israel and even us to the truth about their relationship with their God. And this is made clear in verse 3 when he, God calls Hosea to do this. He says to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking their Lord. There's a purpose to all of this. It is showing what is happening to the people and to land where they live when they're forsaking the Lord. But we do, at the same time, need to know a couple things, understand a couple more things for this marriage. So God's command to Hosea, it's very specifically to find a wife who in some way has been marked at this point by sexual disgrace. Now this can mean a whole lot of things. It could be anything from a career as a prostitute to just a mistake before marriage. The point is that the community knows Gomer for her transgression at this point. And as we say that, it's helpful to kind of understand the broader cultural world of Hosea and Gomer. Um, I hope many of you know Pastor Josh Moon, who's pastor um, at the church plant Resurrection Anglican. They went out from us about eight months ago. Um, he's also Dr. Josh Moon. His PhD is in something Old Testament-y. Um, but he wrote a commentary about Hosea. It's a very good commentary. You should find it. He's taught about this. So I'm going to borrow a couple things from him here um, and tell you a very key helpful detail for us is to understand that in the cultural world of Hosea and Gomer, um, the people, it was all about honor and shame and how they viewed each other and viewed the world. So people would pursue honor, right? Doing certain good things, certain things would bring you honor. You tried to avoid shame, but it's by your actions that you bring shame upon yourself. And that mattered, of course, in how people treated you. If you were a person of honor, you were treated very differently than if you were seen as a person who was high in shame. So Gomer here, because of her past, has in the eyes of her community sort of this stain of shame that always accompanies her. It's a stain that says to everyone, avoid her. Don't get too close, and especially it said, do not marry her. And that's because one of the things about honor and shame in the culture around them was that it was contagious. So if you were held in honor, those around you, your family and friends, they were going to have more honor. But if you were shamed, your shame impacted not just you, but everyone around you, your family. So Gomer's shame followed her into the marriage with Hosea. And culturally, it brought him shame too. I want to be clear for a moment here, though. That's not a good thing. This was a reality in the culture at the time. God was using that reality and these ideas. That doesn't mean God likes them or we like them in those ways. But God's command to Hosea is to marry this woman who's been marked by shame. And that brings Hosea shame. And then it goes beyond that. The shame will mark even their children. That's why they're referred to with such strong language here. 
In the eyes of everyone, this whole family, even the kids have been marked in some way. So why is God doing it, though? What's the point of this? Well, God is taking that cultural reality that everyone knew and experienced, and he's using it to highlight a real issue, the real problem of Israel's relationship with him. So as the people thought about shame spreading in some ways, he's actually pointing out to the real ways that sin and shame is going around. God's point is, with all the things you do, with all the sins, you are bringing yourselves deeper and deeper into shame. You're spreading it around your nation. Even the ground of Israel is being shamed by you. Even you are shaming me in this. Your constant sins, your disregard for your covenant relationship with God, these are shameful things. You act in disgrace and it pollutes everything. And God's using the imagery of marriage here because it's so fitting. Like a marriage, Israel's meant for a unique relationship with God alone. They're meant to be devoted to him in what they're doing. But Israel again and again throws out that covenant relationship, throws out all of those things. They worship other gods, they reject God's justice and holiness by their actions, and they are bringing real disgrace upon themselves. They're even tainting the land by their actions. That matters because this is God's land. This is the place that he's given for them to dwell. Especially, this is the place where he's meant to be made known in the world. And instead, what they're making known is debauchery and villainy. Their sins are so great. They are so unrepentant. It's like they're shaming God himself, if that is possible. So this is what Hosea's marriage to Gomer is pointing to this huge, painful reality of the sins of Israel. It's what his words are trying to explain about it. But then his marriage isn't the only sign in the story, because Hosea and Gomer have children, and each of those kids is given a name that functions as part of a bigger sign and witness to all Israel. I want to take a moment as just a quick aside before we continue into those names. It's like address this passage this week and study it. Um, it's a hard passage to think about and to ponder through. And I have to wonder at times, like, what are you doing, God? What's going on with the way you are with people here in this story? I mean, he's using Gomer's shame, the names of the children. He turns Hosea's life totally upside down in this, um, just for this great prophetic sign in this. Maybe as you hear it, you feel a little bit of struggles with that, or maybe now you do because I told you about mine. Um, let's just say... It is okay to wonder about what God is doing. It is good to ask and explore that in our ways. But then we're in a text like today, and we do have to deal with that the text gives us no direct answers. So there's often a call to live in this tension of, I don't understand what God is doing right now. I need to hold on and see and understand where he's going. But even as I say that, there were a couple things I was thinking about this week that kind of helped me process this a little more. First, like I said, we told very little about Hosea and Gomer, the kids um, here. We see a hardness to this initial call and to what's happening, but we, we aren't told about all of the grace, the grace that I'm certain is there. There's actually one big example in the text that we just don't recognize because of how far away we are from this time. Um, without Hosea, Gomer almost certainly would never have married. And yes, that seems sad in some ways, and yes, she wouldn't have had kids, but even just on a foundational level, if she had never married, it likely meant no one was there to help protect her, to take care of her, especially as she aged. She would have had no one else. You couldn't just be an independent, strong, powerful woman all by herself at this time. It didn't work that way. So this marriage is a lifesaver in so many ways for, for Gomer in this. And then there's possibly so many other ways that there is grace, there is hidden gifts in this marriage that we're just not told about. But second, we can be honest. God really does ask hard things of his people sometimes. He can. He's the king. He's God. But no, he never asks us to do or endure what he himself won't. 
And when we look ahead to Jesus, we see God embraces hardships and shame to bring about our salvation. And it's our salvation and the peoples of Israel's salvation that he's working for even here in all of this. So let's go back to the passage now, and we see these kids' names. Um, Each of them is named, and then they have a bit of an explanation to that. It's not just for Hosea's sake. It's because he's proclaiming this to the people. It's his child is named. He can hold them up and say the name and tell them all that God is saying, all that God is promising here. So first is the firstborn son, Jezreel. Jezreel was an area that was known for pretty significant bloodshed already. It was also geographically really important. It was kind of a big valley before Jezreel. If you were going to invade Israel from the north, you would come through that valley. So the promise here is of complete military defeat, destruction, the end of their kings and their ways of life in this. And then second born is their daughter named No Mercy. Very easy to understand because God says he will no longer have mercy on Israel. And then finally is born Not My People because Israel is no longer God's people nor he their God. These are disastrous names and promises on their own, but together all of these warnings are growing worse and worse until we need to see finally they are demonstrating a complete end of God's covenant with his people. God's covenant with Israel meant that God would protect them from the nations and make them prosperous. His covenant especially meant that he'd already had mercy on the people by making them his people. But also he was going to continue to have mercy on them through the sacrifices and worship, through giving them the gift of his presence. And finally, in very key spots in the Old Testament, when God talks about his covenant, he can simplify it down and simply say, they will be my people and I will be their God. But in these names, God is promising that each major piece of that covenant is broken. The people will not be protected. They will not find mercy. Worst of all, they are not God's people. He's not their God. This is devastating. This is really hard to hear, I think even for us. So why is this happening? It's helpful here to follow through into um, what Hosea proclaims in chapter 2, or frankly, most of the rest of the book. Um, Because then we realize it's not God here breaking covenant. God instead here is proclaiming what's already true, and that is Israel has broken covenant. They broke covenant time and again for more than 200 years, but God remained He called them to repent. He called them to life, to wholeness in him. But they wouldn't listen. And so finally, God tells the people, then you get what you wanted. You get what you've earned. The end of that covenant. The end of the unique relationship with God. But again, isn't God their faithful husband? How can he allow this to happen? Chapter 2 actually goes through this very specifically, describing God as their husband, but it's Israel who is the unwilling and unfaithful bride. She wants nothing to do with her groom. He gives her countless blessings, which she just used to pursue others. Israel used all of God's provisions and pursuits of other gods and their own pleasures, their own lack of holiness and neglect of justice. So God promised he's going to take all those things away. Continuing on in Hosea, we see multiple times that Israel's defiled the land with all of her sins, so Israel will be taken away from the land. Chapter 2 actually is framed a lot like um, a statement of divorce. Israel is saying, we don't want this relationship, so God says, then you will be free of it. And as you are, you'll see where your blessings really came from, not those other gods you served. They came from me, the God you're turning away from. So this is a hard thing, but it's not unexpected. It actually is very fitting. The people abused God's gifts, so he removes them. They defiled his land, so he removes the land. And it's not because God doesn't love them. But their sins have clouded their eyes. They take God for granted. They need to see the truth. They need God's answer for all their sins. 
Judgment will not only stop those sins, but it can even wake them up, open their eyes to see what is happening. Yet even as we feel that weight and that struggle, even this moment in the prophecy, we actually don't have full time to wrestle with the enormity of it all because right after God proclaimed, for you are not my people and I am not your God, in the very next breath he says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. Just a few verses before, he promised Jezreel would be a place of defeat. And now he promises that Israel and Judah will be reunited and they'll go out in victory and strength from Jezreel. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he tells them to proclaim that they are his people. They have received mercy. Then we have to go on. This isn't a momentary lapse here. He's not confused by what he's saying. He says the same things in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he spends 13 verses explaining Israel's sins as if she's an unfaithful bride. And then without explanation, God turns and says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she will answer. He goes on to say, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So even as God tells his people that the covenant is truly broken, he tells them that he will never let it stay broken. He's been patient with Israel for hundreds of years as they turned away from him. And even as he lets them go now, go away from covenant, he promises he'll never actually turn away from them. He will pursue them. He will reclaim them because he has promised to always be God for them. If we continue on to chapter 3, Hosea is told there to go Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So we saw in Hosea's marriage to Gomer, we saw a highlighting of the sins and shame of the people. And here we see a highlight of the great love of God. Even though the people do turn away after those other gods, the Lord still loves them. And as the passage goes on, it says that it's because of God's great love that the people will turn back to him. He's their covenant-keeping, truly loving God, and he will bring his people back to relationship with him. He'll bring them back to forgiveness and grace, to new life and new living uh, in his love. The passage began, though, with a very hard question about the sins and shame of Israel. They're so disgraced by the shame, so disgraced and shamed by their sins that it was like it was contagious to everything around them, bringing greater disgrace around them on the land even. And I said, if possible, upon God. But the point of these chapters is that it's not actually possible to shame God. Instead, God, knowing the people's shame, pursues them still. In this marriage in chapter 3, Hosea is told to find an adulteress and love her because it's like God loves his people. He knows they're sinful. He loves them still. He knows the fullest extent of their shames. He laid it all out in chapter 2. But God seeks them out and loves them anyway. And in being joined to his people, God is not shamed. Instead, he takes away their shame and he gives them his honor and his glory. He's just totally upending all the expectations that people knew with forgiveness and love and real honor. And we actually know God really meant this when he said this because we know God really did it. When God took on our flesh, when the Son of God was born of Mary, then he really did take on all of our problems and our pains. He took on our temptations and our struggles. He lived through all of that. But even more, as Jesus hung upon the cross, naked, exposed, mocked and cursed, he bore the full weight then of not just our sins, but our shame. 
and it died with him there. And it did not rise with him again into new life. So Christ endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and then he sat down at God's right hand in glory. And we are with him now, even now. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul actually tells us we are united with Christ. Even we are so joined with Christ that we're seated with him in the heavenlies. We're seated with him in his position of glory and honor. Our sins and shames have been dealt with in Christ. He gives us his life and honor and glory with him. So this is God's invitation to all of us, no matter the weight of our sins, the stain of the shame that we feel, the ways we've been hurt or tossed aside, even for those who don't feel like we're part of God's family at all. God knows all of this, and he loves us still. He calls us to turn to him and know his embrace, to find their forgiving, healing, purifying love, and then to hear him call us his beloved. And as we know his embrace, then we get to be astonished as well as he will crown us with his own glory and honor. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your faithful, never giving up, always and forever love. We are thankful that you um, call us to yourself, you beckon us, and you give us your great forgiveness and glory. Um, Help us to rest in you um, in all these things and help us to call others in to your embrace. Amen.